The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning, Philadelphia. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, broadcasting live from our studios on the main line. I am joined by Marilyn Stern, our producer, and Gary Gamble is still on leave this week, but he has helped us arrange some excellent guests that will be joining us at the top of the hour at 1010 and also at 1030. We have Michael Pregent, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, former member of the Defense Intelligence Agency's senior staff and senior intelligence officer in Iraq. And at 1030, we have Jonathan Tobin, editor-in-chief of the Jewish News Service, JNS, speaking to us about the latest on Iran. But first, many, many items have been developing throughout the Middle East. And I'd like to speak again a little bit about Israeli democracy. We haven't talked about this subject in about four or five weeks, I'd say, because we've been waiting to see if the Israeli parties that were elected after the last Knesset elections, the second Knesset elections of 2019, were able to get their act together. Let's do a brief recap, and then we'll try to figure out where we're going. First and foremost, the Israeli electoral system is decided on a unicameral legislature having multiple parliamentary parties, just like a parliamentary system, but in a way that's sort of a free-for-all. There's no specific individual who is able to get up and say, I can form a government because of his allegiance to a political party or to a specific class of individuals. There's never been a time in Israel that a majority of legislators have been able to form a party, perhaps in the beginning uh, time of the state with David Ben-Gurion, but I'm remiss to say that there was ever 61, there's there's 120 seats in the Israeli legislature, the Knesset, but there's... 61 seats in one party to have ever have been able to achieve that. I, I don't think that's happened in the history of the state. But it's very important to note that right now we are in literally an absolute democracy in Israel. The rules in which they're abiding by are twofold. One, an interim government being led by interim prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu already having indictments, three of which are hanging over his head but the inability for the Attorney General of Israel to actually file those indictments because of the dysfunctional nature of the legislative activity that's going on there in the country. The second thing that you have besides the interim government is 120 members of the Knesset who were assigned across more, about 10 or 11 different parties, of which anyone can become the next prime minister. But let's talk about how we actually got here. March 2019, we have the first Knesset elections. September 2019, the second Knesset elections. Now, why was there two elections? It's because the parties which were elected in March of this year, March, April of this year, were unable to actually get together and form a majority coalition government to decide who was going to be the next prime minister of Israel. Netanyahu wasn't able to do it. The uh, second largest party back in March, the blue and white party, Kohalavan, led by Benny Gantz, a former Israeli army chief of staff, wasn't able to do it. No other parties were able to do it. But the thing that's different between March and September in the two elections was that instead of having another individual have the opportunity to form a government after Netanyahu failed in the first half of the year, he said, you know what? Let's try this again. Let's go to another election. Let's roll the dice. Maybe the results will be different. Except for a few outlier 
shifts in the way in which the right and left wing blocks, not to mention the Arab parties, the Israeli Arab parties, were put together, there was really no difference in the election results in September from what happened earlier in the year. But what was different after these elections in September was that Netanyahu had a chance to form a government, but then instead of saying, you know, let's go to a third election, he said, I'm going to give that mandate back to the president of the state of Israel. The president of the state of Israel is largely a perfunctory ceremonial position. It's a head of state. It's not a head of government. This is an individual who can grant pardons. He welcomes new ambassadors. He also has maybe the one significant part of his job is allowing individuals to get the mandate from the president's office to form the next government. So you have all the political parties which come to the president's residence. You have Likud and Blue and White and the Labor Party and the ultra-Orthodox religious parties and the Arab parties. Anybody who's elected who passes the electoral threshold of three and a quarter percent is able to recommend who they want to be prime minister. And the president decides who is going to be that individual that he thinks is most likely able to form a government. Netanyahu, again, gets the mandate after the elections. Then he returns the mandate to the president's office instead of asking for an extension on time because he's in a situation where we find ourselves seeing, you know what, I can't form the government, so I'm going to let somebody else do it. But he does it as a political maneuver. He doesn't do it as the actual nice, non-cynical, democratic-loving prime minister that he is. He gives it back to the president. The president then grants it to the head of the second largest party, to that of the Blue and White Party. Gantz, Benny Gantz, gets the, the, the mandate. He tries to form a government for 28 days. He says, you know what? I can't do it either. So he gives that mandate back to the president. Now we are in the wilderness of an absolute democracy. After two individuals are given the opportunity to try to form a government under the Israeli political system, under the Israeli electoral system, under the, the way in which the Israeli government works, you now have a 14-day period where any member of Knesset from November 27th to December 11th is able to try to form his own coalition. You literally have individuals walking around with yellow legal notepads trying to garner 61 signatures to try to get a majority in government so that they can become the next prime minister and a coalition that they put together is able to form that. No one is beholden to party laws. No one is beholden to the list in which they were elected. It simply requires a 61, 61 seat majority, 60 seats plus one. Now, what's the problem with this? Netanyahu, faced with these indictments, faced with internal strife in his own political party. The difference this time is, is that he now has a challenger from within his party. Former education and interior minister Gidon Saar. Important person, you should all look him up, G-I-D-E-O-N-S-A-A-R, Gidon Sar, who took a break from politics five years ago to help raise his infant son. Now his son's in kindergarten, Sarge returns to the Knesset. Both behave the same way. <laughs> Both pretty much behave the same way. But at the end of the day, Sar has openly declared that Netanyahu should resign, not because of his pending justice problems, but because of his inability to form a government. And we're going to see a primary within the Likud party prior to the next national elections. Now, there still is seven days for someone to be able to form a government before we go to a third election in one year, in less than one year. But what I think is going to happen is we are going to get ourselves into a situation where 
Netanyahu and his his lucky streak, he's been prime minister for the last 10 years, almost 11 years, is going to potentially come to an end. And what this means in the meantime is, is that so long as that there is uncertainty in the ruling class of Israel, this presents a weak point, a point of weakness that Israel's enemies are seeing. Why do you think there's been round after round of rocket fire coming from Gaza right after the elections end? They're challenging the next leader. How have Iranian forces been able to encroach on the Syrian-Israeli border? Why are more munitions coming down and coming across? It's because there is what's called in Hebrew, a lack of certainty on the Israeli side in terms of where we see them going. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this Iranian infiltration, not into the Syrian uh, territory, but more about their general larger problems and why they may seek to strike Israel and take advantage of this electoral uncertainty. They're facing their own domestic problems, but that's the subject of the next interview. Beyond anything else, it's important for us to realize this in terms of where the Knesset and where the Israeli government's going. One, Netanyahu's re-election and appointment as prime minister for another term is not guaranteed at all. Number two, the same is true for anyone in any political party that's trying to face him. And number three, so long as we have a hung government in Israel, it makes that country's national security less safe. After these messages, we'll be joined by Mike Pregen. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org. Or check us out on Twitter, at Islamist Watch. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today, or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB, 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. And my next guest is someone that I've had the pleasure to get to know over the last few months. We recently ran into each other at a conference covering Turkey, but that's not the subject of our interview this morning. Michael Pregen is a senior fellow and Middle East analyst at the Hudson Institute, a former adjunct lecturer at the College of International Security Affairs, and a visiting fellow at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University, with a... 20-plus-some-year career 
in the U.S. Armed Forces, uh, part in the U.S. Army, part in the Defense Intelligence Agency, and also with tours, I believe, Mike, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, to Iraq and also other Middle Eastern countries. He brings a wealth of knowledge to speak about our next subject, which is Iran. Mike, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Greg. I appreciate it. Let's get right off the top. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo recently announced that the United States would use our legal authorities to sanction corrupt individuals stealing Iraqis' wealth and those killing and wounding peaceful protesters. That's a big change from our policy of working with the same people in government that Iran supports, no? Yeah, it's, it's a big deal to have the president actually recognize that there are protests going on in Iran, back the protesters, and start to... Uh, uh, threatened to name individuals to be sanctioned. There will be sanctions upcoming, uh, and those individuals will be named. So sanctions are put on members of the IRGC, that are put on members of the Iraqi government that may be backed by Qasem Soleimani, the head of the IRGC's external operations wing, the Al-Quds Brigade. But what are sanctions actually doing? I mean, how is this going to affect the ability for America to influence policy in Iraq vis-a-vis -vis their interlocutors there? versus the ability for the Iranians to influence what's going on in the country? Well, Iraq is basically uh, a place where Iran is able to offset U.S. sanctions against the Islamic Republic of Iran. And by the U.S. threatening to sanction economic sectors, ministers of Iraq's uh, economic ministries, oil, gas, electricity, uh, that, that puts a lot of pressure on Baghdad. Also, we are the, the guarantor for all of those loans that are going into Iraq's reconstruction. So we have a lot of tools, a lot of smart power and soft power to use to be able to put pressure on Baghdad, pressure that we have not exerted yet. Let's go back to Iraq protest 101, and we'll get to the Iranian protests too. But in the last few days, we've seen the resignation of the Iraqi Prime Minister Haddad al-Abadi, We've seen the uh, rise of this what seems to be leaderless street movement against the central Iraqi authority in Baghdad. We've seen uh, attempted entries into the green zone. This may have had to do something with the firing of the head of Iraq's counterterrorism division. Take us back to the beginning of these protests and walk us through the timeline of how we got to this point where so much pressure was put on the prime minister to force him to resign. Well, these, uh, these protests uh, began last year, and at the time, the protesters burned down the Iranian consulate, and in the contrast to where we are today, last year, the State Department condemned the protesters for burning down the Iranian consulate, specifically Brett McGurk. This year, it's a much different story. The protesters have burned down the Iranian consulate in the Najaf three times already this year. The third time was yesterday, and, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, Basically, the complaint is that a country that can export 3.6 million barrels of oil a day cannot provide clean water, electricity, internet, and jobs to a community that it's taken for granted. And the community I'm talking about is the Shia population of Iraq. 70% uh, of the country is under the age of 30, and 60% of the country is Shia. Now, when the Sunnis and the Kurds have protested in the, in the past or tried to use the Constitution to strengthen their positions, they've been met with force. They've been, they've been uh, fired at in Ramadi. Uh, Sunni protesters were killed in 2013. And Baghdad's claim was this is the beginning of ISIS. This is the beginning of Daesh. Uh, when the Kurds tried to use the referendum in 2017, they were met with heavy-handed tactics from the counterterrorism uh, 
service and also the Shia militias tied to Qasem Soleimani, specifically Qatar Hezbollah and Assab al And they, so they, two, two they, they lost, by, the, the Kurds lost their control of, of Kirkuk, I believe. Yes, they, they, they won the referendum and then they, they took away territory by force, they being Baghdad, with a green light from the U.S. and basically two militias that Qasem Soleimani created under the Iran deal. Uh, correct me. Uh, two militias, two additional militias that he created under the Iran deal also participated, but the two militias that really took credit for Kirkuk were Kitab Hezbollah, uh, led by uh, Abu Radi al-Muhendis, who's a designated terrorist who's killed Iraqis, Kuwaitis, and Americans, and AAH, uh, led by Case Kazali. And the protesters this time, this is different. Uh, these are the Shia youth protesting against the status quo, protesting against the Shia religious parties tied to Tehran, blaming Iran for Iraq's inability, for Baghdad's uh, inability to, to manage an economy. And basically... Uh, Protesting against politicians are more beholden to Tehran than they are to the Iraqi people. So tell me a little bit about some of these Shia politicians on the Iraqi side. I heard a rumor that it may have been the Saudi government that had financed the rise of Muqtada al-Sadr after the uh, re-entry of um, Saudi uh, diplomatic representatives into Najaf or Karbala. You're going to have to correct me on where exactly their uh, their consulate is outside of Baghdad, but there may have been uh, support for al-Sadr by the Saudis. Now that's a Sunni majority government supporting a Shia politician being their neighbor. What's going on with that? Well, I got I got to just uh, get this this Sadr narrative straight. We uh, al-Sadr was looking for a paycheck, and the Saudis have always been willing to dish one out. Uh, when Muqtada al-Sadr went to Riyadh uh, to meet with Mohammed bin Salman, he went to Tehran three days later to apologize for that visit. Uh, Muqtada al-Sadr is somebody that Qasem Soleimani and Nasrallah from Lebanese Hezbollah has always been able to influence. Uh, I spoke to uh, some Saudi officials last year and some Saudi officials about a month ago and asked them how that relationship with Muqtada al-Sadr is going. And I also said that Qasem Soleimani doesn't care if the Saudis paint the desert green in Iraq as long as they don't interfere with Iran's strategic goals. And Muqtada al-Sadr is not interfering with Iran's strategic goals. One point of clarification, these protests have nothing to do with Muqtada al-Sadr. He's tried to hijack this protest movement several times only to be rejected by the Shia youth. Uh, they are rejecting all parties, to include Seriyun Party, which is Muqtada al-Sadr's party, and also the Hikma Party, led by Hakim. This, they want a movement that is based on uh, economic rights, uh, prosperity, opportunities. They want to see Western uh, investors, uh, professors, uh, entrepreneurs, and tech people, instead of, you know, people in uniform and diplomats. They're, they're tired of this engagement from the West simply being a military one and a diplomatic one that has led to shoring up a government that is more beholden to Tehran than it is to Iraq. So this is the situation as we see it right now. What are the avenues forward? So you have al-Sadr who is you know, somewhat in line with the Iranians. You have these new Shia representatives who are speaking on behalf of the youth who want to be more Western. Six months from now, where do we, where, where do we go? 
Well, in six months from now, it'll be it'll be colder. Uh, there'll be there'll be uh, heating issues. There'll be electricity issues. But I'm concerned that the West will simply be happy if there's another prime minister that appears to be moderate. It doesn't matter who the prime minister is. It doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter who the speaker of the house is, as long as four individuals remain influential. Those four individuals are former prime minister Maliki, Nouriel Maliki, Hadi Alamri, leader of Badr Kor, who's in charge of all the militias, uh, who who controls the Fatah party, which has allied itself with Maliki's party, State of Law, and they basically are the kingmakers in the Council of Representatives. They decide who the prime minister will be by using uh, heavy-handed tactics, bribes, influence, threats, and they are both tied to Tehran. They are both tied directly to Qasem Soleimani. So it doesn't matter who the prime minister is, as long as Hadi Al-Amri, uh, former prime minister Maliki, Case Kazali, and this individual. I have no idea why this individual still has power in Iraq. And anytime you ask the Department of Defense, State Department, or the intel community, why is Abu Mehdi al-Muhendis still in a leadership position? He's the deputy director of the Shia militias. He gets a government paycheck. He has access to U.S. intelligence, U.S. funds. His, his, in, his uh, militia members receive training and equipment from the U.S. Training Equip Program. This guy's a designated terrorist. His organization, Kitab Hezbollah, is a designated terrorist organization. And he has a government paycheck, a government office, and you have to walk by his office to get to the prime minister's office. And the, anytime I ask a State Department uh, official, uh, defense official, or intel official, that stumps them, and that shouldn't be the that shouldn't be the case. Who on the American side is dealing with this portfolio? Uh, it's a new American every year. Um, that's the that's the the benefit that these Iraqi politicians have. They've seen 18 iterations of the U.S. advisor, 18 iterations of the, of the person they're supposed to talk to about security issues, and they had developed the playbook. There is no institutional knowledge that's being captured on the American side that can deal with these individuals. Everybody who knows these individuals, all, all those, all those, you know, former generals, former intel officials, former State Department of Defense, are now out of government or working other portfolios. So it's very easy for a seasoned Iraqi politician tied to Tehran to be able to tell an American in an English accent, a British accent, um, I'm trying the hardest I can. These things are very difficult. You just need more American money and more American uh, training equipment, and we'll get it sorted out in the future. And that's the tactic, to wait out until you get the next American so you can you know, put the playbook back in play. So we see the Iranian thumb in the Iraqi pie. Tell us about the protests going on in Iran right now. There's been some horrendous reports that are coming out about massacres going on throughout Iran, not just in Tehran. It was 10 years ago during the uh, Students' Revolt, during the Green Revolution, or even what it was two years ago in December of 2017 when we had the revolts um, in, uh, and I'm going to forget the name of the town, Anyway, the, the northeastern Iraqi, uh, excuse me, northeastern Iranian uh, uh, blue-collar town where it was being led by the bus drivers committee that was there. Um, what's going on in Iran right now? Well, the thing that's going on in Iran, Iraq, and Lebanon is the people are fed up with the mismanagement of economies, uh, and the people that are leading these economies are all tied to Tehran. 
the spectrum system, of course, Iran is tied to Tehran, of course. But what's interesting about this is they're leaderless, they're organic, uh, they are spontaneous, and they have momentum. And now they're in Iraq, Iran, and Lebanon. So Iran built a land bridge from Iran to uh, to Lebanon, you know, in order to put pressure on Israel. And the best thing about that land bridge is protesters are occupying it. Protesters are occupying it in Iraq and taking away that land bridge to Syria. Um, another interesting aspect of these protests is in Iran, uh, Qasem Soleimani is bringing in Iraqi militias to deal with the Arab uh, Arab communities and also the Persian communities. So the preference is use Iraqi militias to go after Persians that are protesting. Use uh, the SEPA or the IRGC besiege to go after Arabs in Ahwaz in Iran. And they're also bringing in Fetamayun. And those are the Afghan militiamen that were deployed to Syria. So upwards of 10,000 were deployed to Syria. They're bringing in Afghan and Pakistani militiamen into Iraq and Iran to go after protesters. Qasem Soleimani knows that his besiege and his, his SEPA cannot go after Persians. So they use the Afghans and the Pakistanis to go after the Persians, but they can go after the Arabs. It's such an interesting di dynamic that uh, Qasem Soleimani believes he can he can deploy. Well, he doesn't. He's doing it, so he doesn't believe it. He's actually implementing it. He can deploy militias from Syria and Iraq to deal with the protesters. Uh, we haven't heard reports that they're in Lebanon yet because Lebanon's a much different uh, situation. But in Iraq and Iran, they are able to kill protesters without the international community condemning it. We've heard a lot of condemnations from Amnesty International, from the United States, from Israel, but we're not hearing those condemnations from Europe. And and this is a, this is not the time to reward Iran with this INSTEX program, this bypass mechanism for sanctions. Uh, this is a time to hold the Islamic Republic of Iran responsible for killing protesters in Iran and Iraq. And, and that's the current situation. The protesters simply want a spotlight put on these movements in Iraq and Iran. They want media coverage. They need Western media coverage. These protests are built for Western democracy support. We're just not getting it out of Europe. And do you think that it's possible for the U.S. to help stoke the flames in Iran and Iraq? I mean, are there measures that the American government, perhaps clandestine measures, that they can take to further embolden more protests against the regimes? Well, I think uh, the United States should name those individuals in Iraq. Uh, Hadi Al-Amri in charge of the Ministry of Interior through his, through his border corps and also the militias. Uh, you can put, put IRGC Quds Force militias on the, on the AUMF, the Authorized Use of Military Force. Right now we can only target Sunni terrorist groups. We cannot target Shia terrorist groups. That, that should change. doesn't mean we have to start targeting them, but the message would be loud and clear. But the biggest thing is encourage Western media to get into these countries uh, have the international condemn uh, the government's uh, internet blackouts, where they shut down the internet while they kill protesters, and and also to um, to basically you know provide more more Wi-Fi, more internet access to to Iraq to Iraqis and any Iranian protesters, but encourage Western Europe to do the same, encourage uh, the regional allies to do the same. Uh, the status quo response to these protests uh, by simply uh, nodding when a new prime minister is put in place in Iraq is just not going to work with Iraqis this time, as long as those individuals that I mentioned earlier still still maintain power. And are there other Arab states 
which are trying to take advantage of the situation in Iran. I mean, we're, I mean, we're, this is we're talking sort of like a, in a binary focus here, right? The U.S. should name, you know, uh, Iranian-backed individuals in Iraq. The U.S. should highlight what's going on in um, Iran itself with more Western media coverage. You talk about Western Europe getting involved. What about other regional actors? What is their responsibility? What tools do they have available to them that may be a little bit different than the U.S.? Well, you know, anything that allows Tehran to say this is an Israeli-Saudi-U.S. Uh, operation to back saboteurs, uh, I think is, is, is something we should stay clear of. Um, we're not very good at this. Uh, we didn't support the 2009 Green Revolution. So when, uh, you know, let's take Venezuela, for example, when Guaido came, uh, came uh, to our attention, we said, we support Guaido. We thought that would be enough. It wasn't enough. You have to do more than just say you're behind something. But in the case of Iran, we, we don't want it to have an American face. We don't want the Iraqi protests to have an American face. We don't want it to have a Saudi face. We don't want it to have an Israeli face either. This is an opportunity where the people that are protesting are willing to die for change. I mean, they're getting shot in the face by militias tied to, to Qasem Soleimani. They want international media focus. They want uh, the international community to condemn these governments, to put sanctions on these governments. They, they, the condemnation, the voice of support will go a long way. And after that, once we shine a spotlight on it, hopefully we can see some solutions. We can see some, some uh, possible outcomes, some people we can get behind. There's a search for Guaidos in Iraq and Iran to get behind. The problem is uh, Qasem Soleimani finds them before we do and disappears them. So, so that's the issue. We need a spotlight on the individuals, individuals that have disappeared. We need to remember four or five names. You know, it's that easy. Uh, we, and then God, we God forbid if we try uh, an Iyad Alawi or Ahmed Shalabi. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we've tried the exactly. end, we've tried the outside in. Now let's try the inside out. Uh, Mike Pregent, senior scholar at the Hudson Institute. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And after these messages, we'll be joined by Jonathan Tobin. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover key tar from your 80s cover band? 
Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk. And we're joined by a neighbor of the forum, a neighbor of myself here on the main line in Philadelphia, and someone who has, for the past few decades, been one of the most talented journalists covering Middle East affairs, Israeli and Jewish affairs, and one of the most well-known names, whether it be a commentary magazine or his current slot as editor-in-chief of JNS, the Jewish News Service, Mr. Jonathan Tobin. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks very much, Greg. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome, and, and it's a pleasure to have you. Let's get right into it. In your most recent op-ed, you urged the Trump administration to exploit what you call a historic moment of Iranian weakness by ramping up pressure. Let's unpack this for a second. First off, why do you believe this is a historic moment of Iranian weakness? For the first time in 40 years since the revolution, why now? Well, I, I think we can judge it by the regime's own behavior. They are resorting to more violence to put down protests. Protests are growing. These are clearly um, a greater threat to the regime that it has faced in the last 40 years of its existence. Um, it's feeling the pressure from U.S. sanctions. Um, it's the terrorists are feeling that their funds are feeling the pressure. Uh, even the New York Times noted that earlier this year. Um, they are back to a certain extent to where they were uh, several years ago when international sanctions were first tried uh, earlier in the decade and which put um, it in a very difficult place only to be rescued by the weakness of the Obama administration and its willingness to take a deal, uh, a nuclear deal with them at any price. So this is a moment again where um, the United States and the West has a chance to exploit this weakness, to call them out, to call their bluff. Uh, of the of the Iranian regime, uh, their you know, sort of fake attempts to start to try to lure um, the West into uh, military conflict, which it doesn't really want, and the West doesn't really want. But when it, what it really wants is distract everyone from um, the fact that it cannot withstand these these pressures. Um, and um, of course, it still has the, um, the Obama administration's old. Uh, media echo chamber echoing uh, their talking points about the only uh, alternative uh, to uh, returning to the nuclear deal is war. Um, that's fake. And the Europeans who are fecklessly now attempting with the uh, growth of insects, their, uh, their scheme to get around U.S. sanctions, um, to, to maintain the, uh, you know, the cash flow to, to Iran, um, but, you know, the Trump administration can't be distracted by all of these things. It has to stick to the policy that it adopted under Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And if it does, I think the, the results will be good. And the more pressure, the more uh, extreme the Iranians get, the more it shows that this, this uh, policy is working. Okay, so, so let's get specific. What should the Trump administration do to exploit this moment of weakness? Talk about some policy options that they have beyond just holding their feet to the fire. Well, I think, um, you know, as, as um, draconian as the sanctions have been for Iran up until now, they can get worse. Um, the United States can seek to embargo all oil sales from Iran. It has been gradually tightening the noose 
It's got to continue to tighten the noose, uh, about which there has been uh, some controversy with the administration. There's been a choice there. Um, Trump hasn't gone quite all the way to really strangle the Iranian economy. Um, the other policy measure has to be in terms of the uh, U.S. reaction to um, what the Europeans have been doing on uh, attempts to uh, evade Iran sanctions. Um, Instex was created by uh, Britain, uh, France, and Germany, the three, you know, three largest European economies. Six more European countries joined earlier this week. Um, I think Trump has to make it clear to them, um, you know, and I should add, I don't know very many economists who think that Instex, which is a barter system, can somehow uh, allow um, European com- countries and, and businesses to evade, to, to be able to uh, no longer have anything to do with the, the U.S. financial system. I have, That's to, I, have to, I, have, I have to tell you a little history on insects. This isn't the first time that sure. the Europeans have tried to skirt American sanctions regarding a country that has been violating American laws. There was also the effort by European countries back in the early 90s to get around American sanctions that the Clinton administrations had put on China for technology transfer and basically reverse engineering uh, copyright intellectual property violations. The Europeans set up a system to do business with the Chinese companies that had been found in violation of American copyright and intellectual property protections, and the U.S. was able to get around with was able to get around the European workaround by sanctioning companies that took advantage of the then 25 years ago insect system. So uh, you have a history in place, actually under a Democratic president, that um, uh, had the U.S. government sanction companies that tried to skirt. A, anti-Iranian sanctions uh, by taking advantage of the insect system. So the easy way to do it is just sanction the companies that take part in deals that are uh, involved yep. with purchasing uh, Iranian hydrocarbon resources or importing, exporting different uh, uh, things to, uh, to to Iran that otherwise would have um, been able to take advantage of this mechanism. Yeah, there are clear ways for the United States to, to strangle this. Um, as pathetic as it is, even on, on its face, um, and um, Trump has to do so. I mean, and actually, also, um, considering the headlines in today's papers uh, as we speak, which is all about um, the Europeans, and in particular, French President Emmanuel Macron, pushing back against Trump for not showing leadership, um, and that, you know, the Europe can't trust America's leadership, well, and, and can't trust the United States to stand up for the defense of the West. Well, Who's undermining the defense of the West? <laughs> it's it's France, it's Britain, it's Germany, it's the rest of the European countries who are looking to help empower and continue to enrich a um, despotic regime, number one, yes, it is oppressing its own people, but from the point of view of the West, very particularly, is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. So, so, and the Europeans are looking to keep a, a life so, John, to keep the money flowing to it and the terrorists. Jonathan, we, we've talked about the weak need behavior of, of the Europeans ad nauseum on this program, and in your writing, my writing, you know, all throughout our camp. But I really want to divide the pro-sanctions, pro-upping the pressure uh, camp on Iran within the U.S. government and within some European governments in terms of the opposition parties that are more inclined to believe in our views into two separate camps or two separate categories. Um, Advocates of ramping up pressure are either regime changers or deal makers. 
those who want to soften up the regime for a better nuclear deal, an agreement to stay out of its neighbor's affairs, and so forth. Where are you standing? Are you are you a regime changer or are you a deal maker? Um, at, at heart, certainly, I think our end goal should be to change that regime. Uh, I think that's what the Iranian people want. However, it is it is it is not unreasonable for President Trump to say to Iran, if you want to survive, you know, Obama said, you know, his goal was to, quote unquote, allow Iran to get right with the world. Well, of course, they had no interest in getting right with the world. They, they, they took all the money that they got from the deal and they just plowed it right back into all the same uh, rogue regime mischief making that they had been doing all along. Um, I, I think... You know, it's sort of a theoretical question. Um, There's nothing um, insane or wrong about Trump saying, well, if Iran wants, or or even Secretary of State Mike Pompeo saying, if Iran wants to act like a normal country, you know, we're willing to deal with them as a normal country. But the definition has to be, you know, be a normal country, stop supporting terrorism, stop building illegal missiles, stop threatening to destroy Israel. Stop doing all the things that make you the Islamic Republic of Iran. So in the end, that's you know it's a circular argument. Iran can't help being what it is. It's perfectly you know I, I'm I'm not willing to protest when the United States puts out a position as long as it sticks to it that if you are willing to act like a normal country, we'll make a deal with you. But we know we both know. And indeed, all of our listeners know that Iran is not capable of doing that. So, in the end, whether we say our goal is a better deal, or, or you know, or, or you know, reasonable behavior from Iran, or we say just change the regime, in the end, it always goes back. It's always going to go back to change the regime because that regime is not capable of being normal. Well, what the regime is capable of doing is causing a lot of problems for America, its national security interests and its allies in the region. So if we see the Iranian regime react to the pressure that you're advocating for and that I believe in by ramping up proxy attacks on U.S. interests, we've seen bombing tankers, we've seen drone attacks and cruise missile attacks on Saudi oil facilities, and all the other proxy attacks that they've carried out over the last year, what should the U.S. do in response? Because we can sanction all we want, but we have seen the... Uh, rank disregard for American deterrence in the region. There has not been one American response, one American response at all to Iranian misbehavior in the last year. Sanctions or no sanctions, they're getting away with murder. They have been. Um, But I'll just sort of to play the devil's advocate here. The, The last thing this administration, the Trump administration wants to do is sort of to prove the Obama media echo chambers talking point right that the only alternative to appeasement is is war. That's not so. The United States can chart um, a path that will allow it to to slap the Iranians down without it escalating. And I think in that sense, um, Trump has erred too too much on the idea of this is these are just bluffs. Let's not play into their hands. I think I think a stronger response when tankers are bombed and when you know clear threats when they step over the line, but to do so with enough restraint so that it doesn't turn into a conflagration that the United States can't control. Um, you know, th- patience 
is is not um, a bad policy here because Iran um, has been doing all these things because it can't endure forever. It knows it can't. Um, um, perhaps you know th- their strategy, and you know, they are probably have been torn by the idea of what are our alternatives? Do we listen to the advice we've been getting from people like John Kerry and just wait for the uh, bad Trump dream to go away? A Democrat will be uh, inaugurated in January 2017, um, 14 months from now, and we can just go back to business as usual. We won't have to worry about the Americans trying to stop us. Or do they ponder what life will be like if Trump is reelected and decide that maybe they then have to, you know, maybe they're better off doing a deal with him before that? Um, these are very complicated questions, and I wouldn't pretend, you know, the... the um, the calculus here is not clear, um, and it's not clear for them, and it's not clear for the United States. But I agree with you. The United States has to do more to to you know to restrain the Iranians, and yet I also understand that, that this administration, you know, um, their desire not to be taken in by these Iranian bluffs. Oh, I, I don't know how much I agree with you on that last point. Their desire not to be taken in by the Iranian bluffs. Remember that picture that was set up in Emmanuel Macron's, the picture of the setup of that black box in Emmanuel Macron's uh, suite where he had set up a communications chamber for President Trump to set it, to step into to speak with Rouhani from, uh, from Iran. I mean, we were on the precipice of a president-to-president conversation. Um between two arch foes, and, and it blew up because the Iranians weren't willing to, to move forward with it. Of course, we don't talk about it, or we don't talk enough about President Trump's willingness to directly engage with a despotic regime. Now, I need to make a big difference. Well, listen, he's done this, uh, wait, hold on one second, Jonathan. I, I, no, hold, on, hold on one second. I need to make a difference, a very clear difference between engaging with North Korea, which is a personality cult, versus Iran which is a Shia death cult. You know, one believes in themselves, the other believes in a higher power, in the 13th Imam, whatever you want to call it, but is going to go so far as to act upon their religious and ideological uh, backbone. I mean, Kim Jong-un has himself. The mullahs have thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of adherents in Iran. Why would Trump go so far as to try to talk to Rouhani? Well, I, I, I think you make a very, um, very strong case for the distinction between the two. I don't know that the president has, you know, has has heard that argument, or if he's heard it, I don't know whether he's absorbed it. He has at times, you know, he is. You talked about deal makers versus regime changers, you know. Trump is not someone who is enamored of the idea of going around engaging in regime change. He is a self-proclaimed deal maker. Um, he almost made, you know, he was ready to, to invite the Taliban at one point. Um, We're still going there. We just up. did it. We just did a hostage negotiation last week. Yeah, the Taliban right. might be in Camp David before the new year. Well, um, he's, he's dodged that bullet uh, <laughs> more by the other side's, uh, um, hard, you know, uh, hard-heartedness uh, that that his own wisdom. Um, this is a this is a this is an administration 
whose foreign policy has always been a mixed bag. It's always been deeply, you know, know, engulfed in deeply contradictory impulses, which are embodied by the president's own beliefs. Um, His, you know, his his desire to withdraw from the Middle East, that, you know, that core America first, let's not get drawn into foreign conflicts, has always been at odds with his instinctive distrust um, and hostility towards the Iranian regime and his willingness to go, you know, to, to, uh, brave the uh, the brickbats he's gotten for reversing Obama's nuclear deal. These two these two policies don't fit together, um, and yet you know his is a brain which um, love him or hate him has always allowed contradictory impulses to reside rather comfortably next to each other. His policy in northern Syria, you know, again it's it's you know his his softness towards Turkey doesn't really mix well with, with other elements of this administration's very strong, very commendable foreign policy initiatives. Um, that's why I guess the battles within the administration and the presence of someone like Mike Pompeo is so vital as opposed to someone like Tillerson. Um, that, um, you know, that, that's, that's a really important thing. This isn't the first administration which has been divided on foreign policy in our history. Um, most have to one extent or another. Um, but yeah, I mean, these, these, there are perils ahead, um, but that doesn't gainsay the fact that on Iran, the United States has, has consistently tended to do the right thing. The question is, will it continue to do the right thing? So I, I want you to indulge me for a second in mixing a little bit of pop culture with uh, the Iranian regime's behavior. If you'll let me uh, work out something that I've been trying to, to think about for the past, I guess, three days now. Um and then comparing it to what's going on. So just just hear me out here, Jonathan. I might get a little bit okay. uh, off off uh, off tangent, but but just hear me out. So on HBO there is a show called Silicon Valley. It stars actually somebody I went to high school with, Zach Woods from Pensbury High School up here in Bucks County. Um, he plays this enigmatic um, COO of a of a tech company. Uh, named Jared, and he's always finding himself in situations where his intentions are to do one thing, uh, which are very, very anathematic to the interests of the company, but it ends up usually because he's such a screw-up, he's able to have a good result come out of it. So this is what we call the rule of unintended consequences. So um, he decides in a episode, in this last episode that took place, to try to deploy a spy within another company to fix the code with something which is associated with um, artificial intelligence, this device called Son of Anton. So the artificial intelligence moves forward and it was deployed to try to fix a issue with um, the way in which a network was being deployed and then the entire network shuts down. It's as if though, I'm trying to draw a parallel here with uh, policymakers in the middle ranks of the deep state within the administration are saying, oh, well, we have to be able to do these things. We can have a holdout. We can have the John Kerry you know, backdoor diplomacy to Iran and say, if they just hold out a little bit more, if they just hold out a little bit more, that's the artificial intelligence, the fourth estate, if you will. I'm not talking about the New York Times. I'm talking about the fourth deep state, which is inside of the U.S. government, that's trying to say, oh, if we just survive Trump, if we just survive Trump, we'll have our sanctions, we'll have a little bit going on, we'll have our, 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 our you know, of this version. Version, uh, American government, artificial intelligence, bureaucrats, whatever you want to call it. And sometimes I think they're operating off of artificial intelligence, not any actual real sense of intelligence. But the reason I bring up this episode is because it seems as if, though, the 
you know, constant struggle between the national security apparatus and the United States, which is trying to go on auto drive, which is trying to go on autopilot, which is trying to just survive a little bit more of the Trump administration's foreign and national security policy. And they're saying, okay, we can sanction, let's sanction a little bit, let's, you know, name more people to the OFAC list and the Treasury Department, that's the Office of Foreign Asset Control, let's put more people on the anti, um, you know, uh, uh, human rights list. You know, let's find ways to to appease Trump to get him to have his goal. But at the end of the day, we're all trying to do this just because we want to try to maintain the status quo. We'll survive this president. But then, the unintended result, the unintended consequences of Trump's policy, and also of the you know uh, folks in government, the bureaucrats who are saying, "Hold on, Mr. President. Hold on, Mr. President," is is that the amount of pressure. It's being put on Iran. Trump's initial uh, uh, instinct is let's engage with them. We'll sanction them. We'll create heavy pressure, but we'll also engage with them. The rest of the you know, national security middle management, let's call them, are saying, okay, we can sanction them, but th- this is the level we can do it at. We have to take this process. We have to wait a second. We have to do this. Is is that all of this noise and all of this sanctioning that's going on against the Iranian regime and the failure to respond to attacks by Iran is actually causing some sort of perfect storm of because the U.S. is not launching attacks on Iran after their tit-for-tat attacks against us or, or, or that we're not employing a strategy of tit-for-tat responses every time they do something against us or our allies. And the Iranian people are seeing this. They're seeing now it's four or five years after the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal is taking place, that the unintended consequence of the Trump sanctions, which I think in his mind is a deal-making strategy, is actually moving us to the other camp of regime change. He's employing sanctions to bring them to the table. But guess what? The sanctions are causing internal dissent and revolt within Iran. Um. Well, first of all, uh, I agree with you. I think Silicon Valley is a hysterical show. Okay, so you know, really I should have asked you if you watched it beforehand. You know exactly second, what I'm referring secondly, to then. Secondly, I'm a couple of episodes behind. Uh oh. So, um, <laughs> thanks for the spoiler. Um, <laughs> but as to the substance, I think, I think, there's a, I think your theory kind of works. Um, I, I, I think it's entirely possible. Um, that, that that all of these different uh, factors uh, ultimately will bring us to a regime change scenario, um, bring the Iranian people to a regime change scenario to the extent that they can. And um, it's a um, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting um, possibility. Um, I think, as I said before, in the end, we always come back there. Um, this regime, this theocracy, uh, you, you rightly call it, you know, a death cult, uh, cannot survive indefinitely, certainly if it's economically isolated, um, if it's called to account, and if it's, you know, it, it's a big country. It's not North Korea. It is not just a personality cult. Um, ultimately, it will fall of its own weight if we if we keep the pressure on Um and if all these other factors, you know, kind of ultimately all move us in that direction, I think no matter what the, you know, what the intentions, you know, you speak of unintended consequence, I think no matter what the intentions of, of any of these, uh, you know, policymakers are going to be, ultimately that's the choice. And ultimately that's where we're, we're going to wind up going, um, provided that um, the United, you know, the United States and the West 
doesn't continue to you know sort of change course and and defeat them lifelines um if if um you know two years from now we have an administration in the united states that is back to appeasing iran that you know that gives them another lease on life um you know the, the historical precedents are you know aren't aren't that complicated um detente um you know is conceived by henry kissinger um, was supposed to allow the West to survive, you know, a, a triumphal uh, Soviet Union, and instead it gave uh, the Soviet Union an extra 10 or 15 years of life. Um, that's the choice that the West faces. Jonathan, we've got 30 seconds left. Tell us a little bit about JNS. JNS, the Jewish News Syndicate, JNS.org, is an international Jewish wire service that provides um, daily uh, news and opinion about Israel and Jewish news and the Jewish world. Um, you can read it online. Uh, you can read it in the many, many newspapers and publications that pick us up. Um, go to JNS.org, see what it's about. Um, it's, the, I think, the best Jewish read in the world right now. And um, every day uh, we prove, um, we show our readers um, some different insights on the news and on the Jewish world, um, that they're not getting any place else. And the Middle East Forum is a proud sponsor of JNS, along with our friends Alex Trayman, uh, Josh Katz, and the vice chair of the uh, Middle East Forum. I think him and, uh, and our founder and president, Daniel Pipes, just got together in Boston on Monday. Jonathan Tobin, editor-in-chief of JNS Jewish News Syndicate, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Greg. And for Greg Roman, Marilyn Stern, Gary Gamble, the entire Middle East Forum staff, we want to thank you for joining us today on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. This is Greg Roman. I'll be joining you from Texas next week, Wednesday, 10 AM Eastern, every week. Have a good one, guys.